said uh, in the very first evening, this, I'm calling this embodied women's practices because women biologically and uh, just you know, physically how we're built um, requires, being a woman requires a certain set of knowledge as to how the energetics of our body work. So one of the hugest barriers to embodiment, meaning the ability to feel what's happening in your body. Because um, embodiment doesn't mean uh, doing heavy-duty exercise so you feel something. It means being able to listen to what your body is telling you and accurately translate that information into appropriate action of all kind, or into just enjoyment, right? So uh, a common pitfall of modern life is a narrowing and tightening of our bodies. Men are built differently, of course, because they're not uh, you know, ovulating and uh, uh, getting pregnant and growing a child and birthing a child, so they have different plumbing, so to speak. So our plumbing comes with a set of uh, real amazing circumstances and a set of really pesky circumstances. And the pesky circumstances are that when this whole area tightens and when the core of the body tightens, which is the result of having to do very goal-oriented, focused, uh, decisive action, then our natural access to the things that we're built for, which is pleasure, pleasure is a woman's birthright, um, and that includes birth, and that includes conception, and includes sex, and that includes walking through life and experiencing yourself as part of nature in the most um, you know, subtle to grossest ways, however you want to say that. That particular birthright has been uh, taken by the kind of activity that we have to do mostly. Thinking, 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 writing, 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 texting, 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 uh, social media, sitting all day, uh, driving, you know, all of the flying, all those kind of things, habitually and, and uh, situationally and habitually tighten all the centers of the body that have pleasure. So now cut to your question, which is immersing in these practices, your sexual energy is coming online. Well, that's a result of you unclenching those areas, number one, and number two, sensitizing to the um, signals that the body sends. Because the body always sends signals, we just don't hear them. Steve, who you haven't met because he's not teaching women's work, um, but is my uh, teaching partner, he talks about the fact that if you go to a rock concert with a friend, that friend has to scream into your ear if they ever want to communicate with you, right? And so um, the, the surface noise or the outside noise is louder than your friend's voice unless they really, really scream. If, and some of you experience this, of course, if you're at a party and suddenly all conversation stops and you've been screaming into somebody's ears, suddenly it's really, really loud, right? So if you would take that friend to a library, if they would talk to you at that same level, it would be horrendously loud because the ambient noise level is down. 
And so embodiment is essentially, the, the, Steve describes it a lot better than I do, but it's, uh, embodiment is essentially taking the ambient noise level down. That includes your thought process, you know, the environmental factors, the actual noise, but also social media, you know, the, the whole thing. And as you take that down, your body's signals are suddenly apparent. And if you take it really down, they get really loud. Right? So suddenly you're in a situation where your body is online, both through the kind of relaxation and connecting with the, the, you know, the natural ways that a woman moves, a woman feels, your lower body relaxes, and you become sensitive to the signals of your body. Your arousal level or general level of sexual desire will rise substantially. And we're not even talking about the hormonal benefits of um, movement practice and, and breathing like we did this morning, you know, that super relaxed, super slow, uh, letting your nervous system call the shots kind of a, a engagement creates quite a spike in pleasure. So that all said, that's all very good news. Now what do you do with it, right? So one thing you can do with it is have it inform you. And what I mean by that is use that energy creatively, right, in actual creative endeavors or um, in, I don't know, decorating the house, uh, you know, anything really that, 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 that gets driven by a sensual aliveness and energy in the body. And house cleaning, in my case, is one of the things I do when I have a lot of extra energy because I like the, I personally like the activity of touching everything in my house. Even though I'm a full-time housekeeper, I, I still do reorganizing and reshuffling when I have all this extra energy because the energy then gets infused in everything in my house. And then when you walk into my house, it's essentially a live house versus just a clean house. So you can do things like that. You could apply that energy even to your business planning, um, your writing, you know, anything you want to do where you specifically go, ah, oh, God, I have so much pleasure. Where can I put that pleasure? And then you sink that pleasure into whatever that is that you're doing, and then it lives there for everyone to enjoy. Right, so that's a good way of, of dealing with it. Um, I typically also do things like, um, I always carry coloring pencils and coloring material around where I use my ex excess pleasure and creativity to create something of beauty for later or for when I travel. Or I just found these postcards up there in the Esalen store of one of my favorite coloring book authors. So you can make them and then you can send them to somebody, which I just think is so cool. So those are little things, but there's lots of them that you can use to rid yourself in a constructive and beautiful and replenishing way of the extra. Right? So that's one aspect. Another thing you can do is combine yourself with nature as a way to recycle and, and you know, inform your body with pleasure, but in a much more primal, bigger way. 
So you could go down to wherever you can see the ocean and sit and combine your sexual energy or your arousal with the ocean and let the ocean kind of wash through you or the wind wash through you or the sun wash through you where you kind of potentiate it in a certain way through nature and where the pleasure becomes kind of a full body pleasure and not a localized genital must get off kind of pleasure which most times isn't appropriate because you can't right uh, meaning if you're driving or if you're here in the middle of uh, Esalen you know campus or so uh, self-pleasure isn't the first go-to thing you do, right? But the, so nature and, and combining with nature and, and be, making it full-bodied is another option. And then, of course, if you feel that you don't have a partner and you might want to start, you know, um, putting your feelers out in that way, but it hasn't quite happened yet and you don't want to just fuck around... Then what you can do is you can do self-pleasure like I just described with nature, but with um, like a, let's see how I can phrase this best. You do it to a man, but not a specific man, right? So one of the ways in my lineage it's done is you, you combine yourself with Shiva, Right, so that, but these are very specific practices that, that deity yoga practices. But you could do self-pleasure and in the self-pleasure open your heart and imagine that you're giving that pleasure to your future partner. And that your pleasure is like a lighthouse, like, you know, like tractor beams that say, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. But you, you, it's, best not to localize it. Right? I know there's lots of people out there who say, um, make a list of... That's a, that's a separate thing, right? I definitely think you should have an ironclad um, wish list for your future partner so you don't date potential. I'll explain that in a second. But for the sake of, of uh, sexual practice, you don't want to do that. You don't want to manifest your partner in the midst of sex, sexual practice, because tall, dark, and handsome could mean anything in that domain, right? So, so, so you make it, uh, you, you open it up to kind of God, right? You're attracting God in a man, and you do the sexual practice to nature or to God, however you understand God, right? so that it's not localized. So if you localize it and you are, um, yeah, horrible things could happen. <laughs> well, just imagine you're doing actual proper sexual practice. So I'm not just talking a quick, you know, five minute clitoral orgasm, but you, you'll, you know, you'll do full body massage and you really get your body open and then you'll start doing some G spot practice. And in the midst of that, you're opening your heart and you feel nature. Sometimes it's nice to do these things outside if you can, you know, not everybody can. Um, you know, or at least out the window and things like that so that you become like really, 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 really big. If in the midst of that you rattle down your shopping list of specific man qualities, you are bound to restrict the enormous spread of love and sexual creativity that's being spread down to something very specific. And unless 
that is really, really what you want, which it usually isn't. Right? Uh, it would be limiting your power to a teeny little hole. No. Because when somebody makes a list for your future men, I'll tell you about the list for future men now, um, what you're mostly listing is your non-negotiables. Because if you list your yeses, you are going to be shortchanged. Because these are, you know, we're talking about human beings, of course, and we're also talking about things beyond your imagination. So if somebody I work with or who comes to me and says, okay, I want to I wanna attract my perfect soulmate, right? Uh, that in itself is dicey, you know, because, well, that's a different story. <laughs> but <laughs> but what, um, what they mean is somebody with whom they want to be. Right? Women have a terrible, terrible problem, and that is we date potential. Right? So somebody comes along, you like the way he looks, he likes you, sex is exciting, but he isn't quite where you would want him to be, but you'll be okay with that because with your help and strong support and with your fantastic invitation, he will become the man that you know he is meant to be. Right, And of course, that's horrible for two reasons. Number one, the poor man isn't good enough the way he is, which of course has horrible results in the relationship because he's, it would be like a guy looking at you and saying, yeah, I mean, six hours of a workout, a different hair color and a boob job. She could be my woman. I'm going to be with her till she looks the way I like her to look. That's going to be six months of hell if you even go along with such harebrained bullshit, right? But that's what women do to men when they say, well, if he just gets a different job, cuts his hair, and wears better clothes. That's the exact same thing. He has potential, right? So you don't want to date potential. So the list that you make is essentially a list to weed out the potentialities, because you're going to say something on your list like, he has a job, right? <laughs> so ideally, of course, most women would like their men to make good money for a variety of reasons. Right or wrong, doesn't matter. Um, so you'll say, okay, I want a man who is passionate about his work. Um, well, okay, he could be serving the homeless and be really passionate about it, and live in a trailer outside your village, Right? That's not what you want. You want the man who's passionate about his work and making a good living. Well, then you meet a guy who is really passionate about his work, but he's not making a good living. And you're going to compromise your list, right? And then you, there will be a next thing. Well, you, you say something like you want him to be extremely healthy. But um, let's say he has really bad eating habits, right? He's, he's still eating like he's in college. It's like pizza every night and a six-pack. And you're going, well, I don't know, I'll start cooking for him and it will be okay. And so on your list, it has to say healthy eating. If he's not health, eating healthy already, he is not your man. Right? So it, it's, it's very hard to do this because you're going to want to mold a guy after your... But believe me, 
23 years of uh, marriage counseling and uh, related things, doesn't happen. If a man changes, it's not because you want him to. It's because he wants to. He might go along for a while because he wants to please you, but eventually he's going to get very resentful and then he's going to cheat on you with someone who thinks he's fantastic the way he is. Uh, and that's the least of your problems. It's the resentment. It's the um, little passive-aggressive stuff. It's the, uh, you know, and it's, it's horrible for a man's soul when a woman is trying to fix him up because he's not a fixer-upper. And sometimes women go and get fixer-uppers because nobody else is interested in them. That's also not good. You want ideally lots of competition, so to speak, and you want to be the highest bidder. <laughs> right? Because then you're also worth something. Now, if you take a fixer-upper uh, hoping that he'll, he'll work itself out because nobody else is really interested in him, eh. You know, it's also questionable, why is he with you? So there's all kinds of things that you want to consider. So your, your, your uh, non-negotiable man list isn't the list you think of when you do sexual practice. It's the list that you think of when you agree on a date, right? But in your sexual practice, you spread yourself out over the globe, so to speak, and you, you generate... Uh, love and sexual energy with everything you got for the benefit of all beings and the man that you're going to attract. No. So, did that make any sense? And so another thing that you can do is if you have all this extra arousal, so to speak, is I don't know what you do for your own sexual pleasure, but go way longer than you would do. So, So you can actually... Uh, resolve a lot of that <laughs> by actually just tiring yourself out. Yeah. And, and tiring yourself out, not in the sense of, you know, masturbating six times a day for five minutes, but saying, okay, I'm going to spend an hour and a half. And in that hour and a half or an hour or whatever, you know, maybe you'll start with 20 minutes or so, but I'm going way longer than I would normally go and I'm going to go beyond the threshold of my normal boredom or my pleasure threshold, and I'm going to keep on going. And maybe all you can do is stroke your thigh for a while because it's just too much. But over time, particularly if, you're, if you know how to reliably have G-spot orgasms, you can have 6, 8, 10, 20 of those in a row, and with each of them, your body gets fuller and, and smoother, but it loses that... You know, that kind of a must-have-an-orgasm or I'll-die kind of a feeling. And, of course, the nice thing about that is if you don't have that, you're not needy. You're not going to attract the guy who's essentially just going, oh, there's a willing and horny woman. Um, let, me, let me see how, if I can jump her. And, of course, if you are in that state, you are definitely a little bit more vulnerable than when you are well-satisfied by yourself. And you can, then you can look at your list, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that, yeah. <laughs>
And by the way, the same is true for men, because men, of course, also are really run by those kind of things. And when men no longer need you to feed them, so to speak, they are much better to be around as far as you can actually connect with them as a living, breathing human being. And it's not all about that moment where everybody gets off. So my advice for men would be very similar. There's other mechanisms to it for men than for women based on both societal and individual considerations. But yeah, you definitely don't go to the supermarket hungry. <laughs> or the day before your period. Or <laughs> when you come home with nothing but packs of chocolate. <laughs> well, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all, but it's not holistic nutrition, right? So when we look at a, an actual future partner as holistic nutrition, snacking isn't the first thing you want to do, right? If you're in a snacking phase, snack by all, by all means, right? But that's different than um, following a trajectory of a certain kind of long-term consideration. Um, there's times in any human's life, man and woman alike, where snacking and trying different flavors is exactly what you should be doing, you know? But you need to know what's what. You know, if you stuff yourself with chocolate, you don't have to necessarily wonder why you know, you're feeling the way you're feeling a couple of days later. And so if you stuff yourself with inappropriate men, no pun intended here, <laughs> there's also a certain kind of a hangover that comes with it. You, know, you have a sugar high and then you plummet. You know? But sometimes it's like, sometimes fuck it, I'll take the sugar high and the plummet, right? But then you know that that's what you're doing. Nobody eats a bag of uh, whatever, you know, like a huge thing of chocolate and, and doesn't know what they're doing, right? So that, that's, that's, and then you can counteract, you know, those kind of nutritional choices with other things as you can counteract certain kind of main choices with other things, <laughs> Right, so that it's a all options. Thankfully, right, we are in a time and place. There's so much horrible stuff happening, but on the positive aspect of things is we as women have options we've never had. As far as making sexual choices and um, having sexual options, we are. It's unprecedented. Right? And you have to imagine that in the fifties. If you were sexually active, um, you couldn't make career choices in, in the way that we now can because you could get pregnant way, way easy, way, way easy. And also in the 50s, right, at least in the States, you had no recourse once you were pregnant. And that's something most, most of us don't imagine that our grandmothers and for some of us mothers couldn't go, well, I'm going to finish my medical degree and then I'm going to do my residency and then I'm going to spend like three, four years establishing a good practice and then I'm going to have a child. It was more like, well, fuck, if that's the way I want to go, we have to use condoms, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the counting method and pray, right? Or um, abstain and stuff like that because... You know, women would just get pregnant and then you had to deal with what that meant on, in all domains. So that's just one thing, right? 
the, the first generation of women on the pill suddenly could go, I don't want a child, and I want to have sex with whomever I want to have sex with. And I can, because I don't have to worry that this guy accidentally knocks me up. That's a fairly new development. And then nowadays we have all the societal options, right, of actually having sex before marriage. I mean, you know, I mean, who, who waits? Well, there is still people who wait, but not many people wait to have sex till they're married to somebody. Because what if you're horribly incompatible? Right? But I mean, you know, most people, that's the way you, you, you had to do it. Right? You, you were just like really, really happy if your wedding night was a good one. So, you know, we can go snack. Plenty, <laughs> you know? and that's a real privilege, and and as such should be taken advantage of in whatever you can stomach. Right? Different people have different ideas around that. Yeah, no pun intended again. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, but it's exactly the same thing, right? Your choices, your choices around men now are very similar to food and lifestyle choices in a certain way, and need to be considered a lot more carefully than our mothers and grandmothers had to. Well, yes. Well, that's, that's the other side of the coin, right? The thing is, we have all the rights and privileges now and ready availability. Anybody can have a Tinder account if that's what you want to do, right? Or whatever, you know, there's other modalities. But it's very, very easy um, to have all kinds of different relationships and all kinds of different sexual engagements. However, in order to, I'm going to just call it very crudely, in order to sports fuck, right, have the sex, have sex for the sake of sex and sex for the sake of um, uh, the conquest, which used to be just a, the man's domain, you have to once again numb yourself in a certain way so that you don't hear certain things, right? Amongst them just on a very biological level, oxytocin. Well, it is just oxytocin, but as we all know, anybody who's ever had a moment of PMS in your life, those hormones are so fucking powerful, right? And when you're in the middle of an oxytocin high, you, you might even know that it's just an oxytocin high, but it doesn't make, you're still like, let me make you breakfast. Let me give you money. Let me massage your feet, right? Like, you're like it's just like, oh, shit. Right? It, and, and so, of course, then if a guy is sexually really skilled, that ups, you know, through the roof. You, and, and this is why women do really, really stupid shit with men who are really, really not good men because they're good fuckers and there's oxytocin involved, <laughs> Right? There is oxytocin. There is. There, I once was involved in a study where women were given oxytocin um, for all kinds of reasons. So you could give oxytocin, but of course, it's no, no, they do. Men, men emit oxytocin too, but men's oxytocin gets emitted. Well, this is where it gets really interesting. I'm not totally 100 uh, percent down on all the aspects of that, but. Women's oxytocin, of course, as you know, is there to uh, induce labor, right? That's the main reason we have oxytocin. It induces labor. It's what makes the uterus cramp when it's time. 
and then it helps with the labor and delivery, and then it creates the ability, or it, it, it triggers the ability to produce milk. While it does that, it bonds you to your child so you don't kill the thing the first time it starts screaming at three in the morning, right? That's what oxytocin is for. And of course, it also bonds you to the person you have sex with because that ensures that you're sticking around and the, the, the father of the child, the child will have a father because you are staying with him as well because you could also kill him on many occasions, right? So that's what the bonding hormone's for. And that's just the biochemistry that doesn't even that doesn't even throw uh, you know take into account habit patterns and stuff like that. But but oxytocin is also released in men and also released in men during sex and particularly during cuddling. Interestingly enough, however, the way it works in men is that that doesn't necessarily bond them to the woman because in male reproduction. Um, having children with more than one woman is actually desirable. It just makes them nice while they're with you. But the moment you're gone, he'll have oxytocin with someone else because that's what he's built for. He's built for the survival of the species to have sex with as many young, fertile women as he can possibly have. And that hasn't changed. Right? So, so he will produce oxytocin, he will bond with you, but only as long as he sees you, pretty much. <laughs> when the next beautiful ass shows up, that's what happens, right? Well, you know, what we're talking about is really literally just sex and reproduction, and it's the lowest level of human, not low as in minor, but it's the primal level of human existence, which is live and reproduce, right? Survival and reproduction. So the body functions first on survival and reproduction. Of course, there's other levels and layers involved. There is the societal level. There is your personal relational level. There is the, the level of spiritual uh, engagement, um, uh, what is considered uh, good and right in a society. You know, all of those things also play, play um, a role. But on a base level, a man won't bond to you because you have sex with him, which is very important because a lot of women use sex to bond the men to them. And there's no doubt that giving a man great sex is great for everyone involved, but it doesn't... It doesn't hook him to you the way you think it or could think. I'm not saying you think that. But a lot of women think that they can keep a guy hooked with sex. And that's only true if the guy doesn't know that he has options. Some guys are very insecure and they're happy they find one woman who will fuck him. Mm -hmm. So then they're like really, and then they're very possessive, of course, right? because it's scarcity. But when a man's available that there's abundant options, as far as women are concerned. And sadly, right, I, oh, I just saw somebody, I don't know what I saw, some, somebody who's famous had just had another child and he was like 82, I think. His wife was like 32. So that's an option. An 82-year-old guy, guy is still fuckable now, particularly with Viagra, very fuckable. Probably more fuckable than you want to fuck him, right? Um, <laughs> 
I mean, who knows, right? With 82, he hopefully has acquired some skills that make it pleasing. <laughs> there should be some experience under his belt, so to speak, with 82. And he's got Viagra, right? And, and the thing is, he can still have a child. Us with 50, it's over, or before 50, right? So, so um, sex will not necessarily bond you to uh, bond a man to you, but what will bond a man to you um, is how shall I say this? Um, common values, common interests, uh, a common greater trajectory. That's, that's one, one aspect, right? And then the other one is love. And, um, and what I mean with that is um, generosity, right? So the thing that has been researched over and over and over and over um, is that people who are together in long-term relationships that work, aren't you about to get married? Listen carefully. <laughs> The number one contributing factor to successful long-term relationship that also stays sexually active is generosity. And that's not, hey, honey, I buy you a new car, but the willingness to give and forgive, the willingness to praise and accept, the willingness to mutually um, work things out assuming that the other person wants also for it to be good. So the, 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 the withstanding the urge to go to the opposite ends of the, the rope, so to speak, right, and go into a tug of war, that's what's most um, important in long-term relationship. And that is something that can be fairly easily cultivated. Without becoming a martyr, there's a difference between always foregoing your own needs for somebody else's. That's not generosity, that's stupidity. Right? But uh, giving somebody the extra benefit of the doubt, going a little bit extra for somebody who you say you love, erring on the side of, of forgiveness or you know, give extra benefit of the doubt, those are, things, those are skills everybody can develop. And that's proven way more effective in maintaining long-term relationships than any sex or anything else. Well, so that, that answers your question in a certain way. It's nice to have an active sex life, but what's much more interesting for most men is their ability to maintain some freedom. You know, that's a really, really important one. Do never, ever, ever, ever keep your guy from doing the things that he did before he married you. Mm -hmm. Right? That, that's that's sh certain death of the relationship. Uh, because it was cool when he went uh, for four-day adventure trips uh, into the mountains where there was no cell phone reception when you first met him. Right? But now that he's your husband, that's no longer acceptable. Um, that will kill the relationship. Wow. Um, and so, so giving, giving a man to have the kind of freedom that he had as, as, as an independent human will go a long way, and praise will go a long way. Yeah. 
because they don't ever get praised. It's only what they've done wrong, what's not right, how they didn't call there, or text there, or didn't take the trash out. Those are the trite examples, right? But the constant, and then that, that will over time create massive resentment. So praise is another one of those. Freedom and praise. So, so essentially, when you are saying, how can I tell the difference between what is my authentic movement and other people's movement that I've taken on, you are saying, what's mine and what's not, right? Or how do I know what's mine and what's not? Well, or how do I keep on doing what's mine? Uh, right, how, can you not, how do you not fall into copying others? So... Um, you have to first kind of just get with the idea that what you consider your authentic movement right now is nothing else but previously learned behavior, right? So when we are born, we don't know how to dance, let's say. And then, of course, as you start moving, if you'd like to dance, or to stick with the dance or move uh, example you'll start bopping around, right? And then very soon, your bopping around will take on different forms based on your influences. Uh, you see your mother move, right? And in, in most cultures that are not that removed from their source, there's specific, so to speak, tribal movements, right? And if you're lucky enough, which most of us are not, and your mother moved and danced while, she was in, while you were in their womb, uh, you picked those rhythms and, and, and movements up even before you were born. So you start moving in certain ways, but you're teaching your body certain movements by practicing them. And then there come the influences, right? I grew up in the... I was a teenager in the 80s, so, you know, I still know some 80s dance moves right? that I don't even think of as 80s dance moves, but that's how we all danced back then. So my authentic movement, so to speak, or your authentic movement is a conglomerate of things you've learned and incorporated. And then there's other people's movements, which is their authentic expression based on all the habits and patterns they've accumulated. And so... You can assume that if you are copying somebody else's, um, it will inform your body and some of those things can become your new repertoire. Mm -hmm. And some of them you'll discard because they don't fit with the existing database, so to speak. Right? So when you liken this to, like, let's say, music, didn't you say you wanted to learn music? Piano, right? So piano is an excellent example, right? When you learn how to play the piano, they put you through all kinds of drills, so your fingers get, and so on, and then you, you learn specific pieces of music specifically for certain technique. And it's other people's music. But over time, as you practice other people's music, your practice becomes such that that gets absorbed in your system. And then when you play... It's your authentic expression, even though you learned it through Mozart or Rachmaninoff or whomever. Right? Um, you are not Tchaikovsky. Mm -hmm. You can play Tchaikovsky, but if you're a good, uh, you know, good pianist, your Tchaikovsky will sound different than somebody else's Tchaikovsky because you have metabolized other people's 
techniques and things, and then it comes out as an art form through you. So there isn't really that much to worry about uh, as far as what's yours and what's authentic and what isn't, because that's a moving feast, so to speak, right? You're constantly um, incorporating things. Like, I, I, ever so often, it's very odd. I don't, it, I mean, I'm looking into what, why that is. I won't go into that, but I sometimes get into these, like, I don't have a TV and haven't had a TV for like over 25 years. But I sometimes get into watching certain shows, typically not things that are here and reality-based, like Game of Thrones or something like that, right? And as I do that, my movement and also my aesthetic gets influenced by kind of binge-watching these things. And I can tell that there's a slight shift in particularly because I'm very sensitive to colors and, and decoration, that my aesthetic changes, sometimes permanently, sometimes temporarily, right? And then the next thing happens, and, but then I notice further down the line, even in movements, because I do a lot of movement practice, that some of that has filtered into me and is now part of my offering, and it's the same in my uh, decoration, in my home decoration. I suddenly see the influences of certain, certain things add another layer to what's already there. So that's how you can look at mo authentic movement and other people's movement. You can always add another layer. There's one caveat, which is when you start resonating with someone else, which is what women tend to do, your style would get informed by other people's styles, right? It's like I was looking at this dress just now, and I remembered that I have a, uh, the lighter of those two green colors. I have a silk chuba from Tibet that's bright emerald silk, like, you know, that kind of Thai silk. And so I looked at that, and I was like, wow, I have to, I have to find this thing. I haven't worn it in so long, right? So, your dress has immediately informed my body. And when I go home, I'm going to find that thing, right? And I'm probably going to wear it. And I'm going to thank you for it. Right? <laughs> but that's how women learn. And certain movements and the grace someone has or the grit someone else has, or, you know, we, we, we resonate and we incorporate. And that's very, very good and healthy, except if you resonate just so that you accept it which is also a real problem amongst women, right? Um, I'll come back to you, uh, why not to fuck around with men randomly in, in a moment, because that fits into that, right? So tribally speaking, for many, 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 uh, for, let's say the vast majority of our human development, 99% of our human development, we were in tribal constructs. And so in a tribal construct, one of the things that's very, very important is that um, women have other women helping with children and food because men disappear rather easily in war, hunts, uh, you know, in all the things that men have to sacrifice their life for, for the tribe. So having a man who is the father of your children isn't as reliable than having other women supporting you because if your guy got killed on the battlefield you had other people watch your children while you went foraging and then the next day somebody went foraging and so on and so on so not being an outcast for a woman is very very important 
right, um, on, a, on a tribal level, because if you're an outcast, you could die. So women tend to resonate and be very agreeable based on the fact that agreeableness is what kept us safe for long periods of time. So in your feminine, that the aspect of you that's feminine, agreeableness and finding a tribe and having girlfriends and connecting is actually very, very natural. However, in the last 50 years or so, we've been trained um, to activate the other aspect of that, which is fight for resources. Because in the early days of tribal existence, you didn't have to fight for resources because you were supported. Everybody did everything together, ideally. But when shit hits the fan, so to speak, and resources become very slim, that's the only time, so to speak, women have to fight for resource. And so nowadays, we are fighting for resource, not only in being the best in business uh, and making the most money, but also getting the best man because you get one and that's yours, right? And he probably won't die in war for most of us, hopefully, knock on wood. <laughs> so, so you now suddenly have to get the best and that's, that becomes the most important thing. And so in that, there's a big juxtaposition between the natural... Um, Sisterhood, not in the you know feminist uh, vernacular, but the actual sisterhood of women resonating, learning from each other, caring for each other, caring for each other's children. How do you learn about childbirth when you live in a tribe? Well, hopefully your mother is there to help you with giving birth to your child, and then you learn that and you help other women give birth and so on and so on. And you've seen pregnancy and you've seen delivery and you've seen death. So you're informed you know, you went through the school of womenly arts of the real kind, um, meaning you know everything about women by being with other women. Nowadays, we're no longer with other women. So we don't learn the essentials and all that's left is fighting for resource. Or often that's all that's left. Right? So that's, that's another reason why we still resonate. We want to fit in. And if you just resonate... Uh, without individuating, you can become a doormat, of course. Right? But if you can individuate and innovate in your own movement and in your own expression, then you become once again of service to the next woman who resonates with you. And so on and so on and so on. And then, do you have a boy or a girl? A girl. Right? So she's already learning from your expression and you bring everything that you're learning, every movement, every expression of your body goes into her and she'll resonate for however long she resonates. When puberty comes, she'll violently oppose you for a few years. Then she'll remember how good you are. Right? So, so that's how it goes. So you pass it down through your own generation and the generation of everyone you meet by um, resonating, assimilating, and innovating. Here's the thing to consider. You could, absolutely. But here's the thing to consider. Um, edge pushing is not conducive to integration. So when you push an edge or when you override an edge, you are essentially forcing your system to do things it's not yet built to do. And 
your system has to protect against the override. So typically what happens when people are really into edge pushing is that they can break through, but the recoil afterwards is so severe and then you've got some scar tissue and also the activity is now loaded with tension. So it's not effortless, graceful uh, activity. It's activity that came with fear and the feeling like you want to puke and overriding your natural inclinations. And that's how it reloads every time. <coughs> and so if you want to be the va vampire of uh, soul... Uh, uh, renewal, right? Um, the last thing you need is push. The last thing you need is tension. So if this is something dear to your heart, it's, it's better to train it in a way that you don't load bad feelings or uh, extra push onto the activity because that will stay. And then it's much harder to retrain without that extra push. Like, for instance, a good example there is uh, golf, right? Guys like to play golf. Then they learn a certain golf swing. And typically, they get very ambitious, right? And they practice the golf swing, and they're, like, all tense, and it's this whole thing. And, you know, then they get pretty good at golf. And then there comes a moment where they can't get any better because their swing is actually not technically the kind of swing that makes them go better. So they hit a practice threshold that is... Uh, based on the fact that there's too much tension and too much wrong upload in in the activity. And then they have to go and find a golf pro, and now they have cameras and everything on that as well. And they have to completely relearn their swing yeah. without the tension pattern. Mm -hmm. And only then can they progress to actual mastery. Mm -hmm. And so learning through pushing beyond an edge or, or staying so far on the edge that, that you have to brace or, or assert a lot of tension is great in the, in the short term, but it's short-sighted because it uh, will not give you mastery. You can only get mastery in the relaxation and in the ease and in the full-bodied execution of the thing that you are into. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's not heart. Now, most people in workshops go for the shock and awe of the edge pushing because they only see people for three days and they really don't give a shit what happens afterwards. Or they even use the fact that you can't progress beyond a certain point to have you come back over and over and over. Right? So you have to come back to have that feeling, that breakthrough, because you can't actually progress on your own. But you're actually never progressing. You're just adding scar tissue. You have opening followed by recoil, followed by scar tissue, followed by another opening through the scar tissue, and so on and so on. And it will make you a decent practitioner, but not a great practitioner. Well, that's the whole idea because one of the big traps uh, that women, you know, the same way that we date potential, we also have an issue, and it's, uh, it's understandable, we have an issue thinking that we're not good enough, right? And so most of us layer more and more and more things on so that we are okay or that we're lovable or that we're good enough. And 
proper women's practice, in my book at least, means stripping away all the artificial layers uh, so that you can actually let the thing that naturally is yours already come to full potential. And when it comes to full potential, it is yours. It isn't somebody else's. And you don't need to do the stripper moves of the woman next to you because that's not you, right? Versus, well, you're fucked up, learn this skill, so then maybe somebody will like you. You know, that, that's a very different thing. Okay, good. So, well, that would be a perfect thing. So let's just say I'm, I'm making this up. You want him to dress better. Like, let's just say, right? He dresses like he dressed when he was 19, and it's kind of a bit embarrassing now that he's a grown man, <laughs> right? Uh, so that's a common one, right? So, but he loves his old pair of shorts, and, you know, you live in Santa Monica, right? Yeah, so, so nobody ever expects that you get dressed any better than whatever that. So, so now, of course, you can go, is, you're wearing this, right? So that's one way you can go. Can't you get dressed a little bit better for when we go out? Well, it's pro if he's a proper man, meaning he has some spine, he's not going to respond well to that because he's going to feel like you're his mother or his warden or you don't like him, right? Um, if you buy him clothes, he's your little boy if he wears them. And if he doesn't wear them, he's an asshole, right? So, so there he's caught in a, in a situation where he's not. But... If he accidentally wears something <laughs> that you like and you are all over him, right, as, as an example, and you go, God, you look so good in those pants. Let me walk behind you, your ass, whatever, right? Like, I mean, you, you need to know what your man likes, right? But most men like to be sexually attractive, right? And they like to look good and they like to be... Uh, you know, uh, praised on the things that are really good about them. You can't fake it, right? Um, but if you go, wow, this looks really good on you. And then if you notice other people looking at him, you can go, this is just an example, right? Did you see those two attractive women over here? They were both like checking out your shirt or your ass in those pants, right? Like things like that where he goes, oh, I guess that it does make a difference how I dress. Right? So that's a, that would be a generous way to speak to his choice in that moment versus constantly nagging on the negative thing. Right. Well, yeah, because, I mean, here's the thing that you have to see. Um, if you have health issues, ongoingly or situationally, if you are with a man who is ferocious in his career choices he won't be around to take you to the hospital, right? He won't be around because he's in a partner meeting or something and he won't be able to leave. You will not be a priority in that way, right? So having him have the, whatever, the hunger that you might want him to have will mean he won't be available to actually help and support you. So that's a bad trade-off. Right? If you're financially fine, if he's not the most hungry, sharky, um, ambitious guy, he probably will make up for that for being actually available to you. Right? And so how you can be gracious about that is that you actually appreciate the fact that there is a man who makes time and priority to care for you. 
which is rare, right? And what you do then is you praise that. And you go, wow, you know, thank you. I know you could have been at work, but you left work to take me to the hospital. I really appreciate that. And by doing that, you yourself will get out of the mindset of scarcity around his work. Right? Because you are reinforcing for yourself that he, the choices he's making are actually benefiting both you and the relationship. You know? And maybe one day um, that will change. But if it doesn't change, that's not such a bad thing. Because if you want to have children, for instance, you definitely want a guy who's around to raise them versus constantly on the golf course or a business trip or whatever else, right? So, so actually, your idea of what he should be doing and, and what he's doing are the incongruent thing, not him. Right? And so you, the way you disabuse yourself of that notion, because he's not that guy, not at the moment, maybe he'll turn at the, in that guy by himself as he gets older, Right, which men do, you can for yourself reinforce who he is and what's good about that, which goes a long way towards generosity. Yeah. But yeah, copious praise, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you're going, ah, fuck, I, should, I wish you'd be still at work, right? But here is with you, being there, giving you soup, right? You, you have to go, you know what? I appreciate you so much for being here giving me soup. And in the giving, you rid yourself of some of that contraction. Right? And that's why generosity works. Because it puts your attention away from your lack towards somebody else's give, so to speak. So be very careful what you wish for for him. Right? And he clearly seems to want to please you and listen to what you're saying, which is not an entirely good thing. Because if he would have, if you would have, if he would have asserted his stance over your stance, he would have been there for you, right? So you have to assume that you don't know best, right? You have to assume that there's a there's a magical thing that makes it so things that he also knows things, and that if he didn't want a day job, um, he had some reasons for that, whatever his reasons were. But you overrode him, so to speak, for what you thought was best, but you clearly didn't know what was best because otherwise he would not have ended up not having help, right? And I can just imagine how gutted he was that he couldn't help, right? Because nothing's worse for a man than when he can fix things. And so the, the biggest gift you can give a man is that you allow them to fix things. And that includes him making choices that he knows are best, cho best choices for the bigger picture. Well, but here's the, here's the very sad news. And those of you in here who have been married for a long time or were married for a long time know that you're fucked either way. <laughs> like, this is where, which way I want to be fucked. That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. The chances of getting exactly what you want from another human being are zero. Zero. 
And, that, and the reason for that is a combination of childhood programming, human fallibility, and changing circumstances. Because the thing is, the thing that you want right now is not the thing you want five years down the line. But you have to remember, it's based on your parents' relationship. Yes. Exactly. It's so what that's called technically is a double bind, yeah. which is, by the way, considered, I'm not joking about this, it's considered one of the sources of schizophrenia. <laughs> uh, and a double bind is fucked if you, do, when it's done to small children, right? But fucked if you do, fucked if you don't. But, but you could say, but you have to understand that saying I want a man who is full on out in the world and a man whose priority I am is a double bind. It's not possible. Now, there's lots of men, including my own father, who had a really proper career and certainly his family was the priority, meaning his personal wants and needs certainly came after us and my mother, right? But what we're talking about is not that. It's not being home every day at six. It's having a single-handed fo single focus on making an incredible mark in the world, right? And what that means is that other things come second. If family is your priority, you don't have a high-powered job. You have a job that feeds your family and you spend all your available resources on family. That's what family being a priority or a woman being a priority. Family is different to me, but a woman, she's saying, I want a guy who is kick-ass out there in the world and I'm his priority. So what that means is when the head office in Tokyo needs support right away, and you have a birthday, which way is it going to go? But what I'm saying is, you, it's not that it's not possible, it's that when you expect it, it's a double bind. Yeah. I know people, one of my clients is probably one of, like I said, one of the top three movie stars in the world, and he has a functioning marriage and children. It's possible... Well, it's possible on the books, but something has to give. But what I'm saying, something has to give. If she says to him, you must, under any circumstance, make me a priority, but I need you to be as successful as I need you to be, she, she is putting him in an unbelievably tough spot because whatever he does, he's fucked. If he stays home for the birthday and something burns down in Tokyo, right? You're going to go, well, didn't you take care of that? Right? And I'm not saying it's not possible. There is men who can do it, but you can't expect it from him. It, that's, the, that's, the, that's the mind fuck. If you make a guy make a choice where he's fucked either way, you're putting him in a horrible position. Right? And many women do that, where a guy can't win. And when a guy can't win, he'll get horribly downtrodden emotionally and energetically. And he'll find places to win, and they won't have anything to do with you or his business.
at that point, right? And so that's all I'm saying is you can't put a man into a double bind. So nobody can be both at the same time. That's like saying, um, I need you to be the mother of our children and uh, totally be there for them with all they need. And I need you to be a supermodel making a six-figure income uh, traveling the globe. Maybe you can swing that, but there's only one person who's going to really, really, really suffer if you do that. You, right? But it's not possible. Yeah, when when uh, It's one of the considered causes of schizophrenia when that happens between a parent and a small child. For instance, one of the classic examples of this that really fucks people up, tell mommy you love her. Tell a four-year-old, tell mommy you love her. I love you, mommy. Oh, you're just saying that because I told you so. Right? So, so that, that's a classic. You see that. I did psych rotations on, on psych wards, right? That kind of shit will fuck somebody up for life, right? And mind you, people do that to each other all the time. If you love me, stay home. Well, you only stayed home because I told you to. Otherwise, you would have flown to Tokyo, right? That's the result of wanting it all. And you're putting people in situations where they can't win. And when you do that, you not only destroy them, you destroy yourself, you destroy the relationship. Some real sick shit. Now, I'm not saying you're doing this, but expecting two things that are not marriageable, so to speak, at the same time, creates that effect. We could look at it this way, right? So um, you're 42. Do you still want children? Let's say between now and 50, you want a child. So that's eight years, right? So it sounds like well-established in your business, and it sounds like you make your own living, right? So um, what are the things that are missing in your life? Yeah, okay, good. So perfect. So from what you've just said, the one thing that, that is missing is actual concentrated intimacy and companionship with somebody you enjoy. So now, let's be very practical. Man who um, has made his mark in the world, uh, is established in what he's doing, and wants uh, to make relationship a priority and be a good father. Man uh, who's made his mark in the world, but still feels like he needs to make a few more millions and uh, build a greater empire. And he also wants a nice relationship, but really when it comes down to it, before he's 50, he wants to uh, uh, you know, um, establish himself in a certain way. Which one is more likely to fulfill your... That's the better choice. Now, would it be nice if he's also financially... Secure, yes, you should definitely not be. Well, no, you don't want a boy toy, but there's a difference between a boy toy and the guy who's still actively empire building, right? There's a, there's a vast gap between those two things. So, so if you're still, if you are looking into a guy who is like your father, empire building, right, that will come, he might be totally into you, but by the mere set of circumstances that are his life, there is pretty much 
no way that he's going to make a U-turn. Because here's what you also need to remember. A guy like you are talking about is at least in his 40s, which means that if he hasn't been married already and have a previous family and children, he's been so focused on getting his shit going that he's probably not super skilled in, in deep relationship. He could have issues, but let's just assume she can weed out the guys with the issues, right? Let's just assume she, because she feels quite healthy in that domain. Let's just assume that she can tell a guy who's not been married because he's actually not marriage material, right? So now we're looking at two kinds of guys, guys who've been married, marriage has failed, they might have a child or not, or guys who haven't made marriage a priority till now. Maybe they want to now. Maybe they don't, right? So you look at a guy who's empire building, um, he's probably not going to make a U-turn for you. You need a guy who has ambition, ideally has already uh, established himself, but isn't so driven that he can't make a U-turn. You want a guy who's comfortably where he is and can hang in the... In the, in the whatever you want to call it, the eddy of your relationship and still do, does what you do and maybe still travel. And, and Ideally, you want a guy who's not always around. So you want a guy who can give you all of that, but who is still willing to be home when you are pregnant and have a child and makes you a, a priority over the business. So you do not want to um, marry your father. Right. Yes. So very big on the list of criteria is not my father. Yes. Right. And for you, not my mother. Yes. And so 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 that's it's a bit for what you know, she was just saying is there's a there's a trade off. There's certain areas where you feel like he's not as sharp as you want him to be. But for that, he's available, you know, and, and not available as in his home at six. That's not, right. I'm not saying your father wasn't available, but like, for instance, my father would come home at six, right. um, but he wasn't available till seven. Right. And the way my parents handled that is my father, which I thought was the best thing ever in hindsight, right? My father would come home, he'd say hello to us, and then he'd go into their bedroom. This was pre-internet and everything, right? So, the, and he would go into their bedroom and he wasn't seen till it was time for dinner. And in that time, my father became available emotionally, physically. So he'd make notes on his day. He and my mom would go in there. My mom would tell him if I had bad grades, which happened frequently, because <laughs> I was very lazy. I was told by my teachers, um, she's brilliant but lazy. Was the <laughs> Turns out I had some very bizarre learning disability, which nobody ever found till I was in my 40s. Uh, so I was just brilliant but lazy. So so she, she'd go in there and she said she got another fail in math. I was very bad in math. And so, uh, you know, then I would be summoned in there maybe if it was really bad. But for the most part, he'd read a newspaper and, he, you know, he'd do whatever he did in there. God knows. And he had a shower and he'd got changed. And then he came out and then he was available. Then we had dinner at 7 without the TV on. Right. That was a no-no in my house. And, and there was actual conversation happening. My father would take us to bed, read to us, hug us, um, you know, be there, and then spend time with my mother. So 
uh, it's possible, and he had a, a career, but he was not an entrepreneur, right? He worked, he had a job, so to speak, a career, he, you know, in a trajectory and raises and everything, but a job, not, he didn't build an empire, yeah, that's right? And that's very, very different. So you, you can clearly have su- such things, but if we're talking Richard Branson type thing, you bet Richard Branson's kids didn't see Richard Branson right. for bedtime. More often than not, probably, right? right? Yeah, That's I not to say that either. somebody like Richard Branson, who I, ad- I admire tremendously, right, isn't... But there's other priorities. When you're about to fly around the world on a balloon, your wife and your children is not the first thing that you think.